It's showtime. Don't say it, please. Don't say it. No, I have to say it, Mitch. Showtime. Showtime. It's showtime, everybody. Showtime. Hello and welcome back to the Showtime Movie Podcast. I'm Sho, your host, as always. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast, by the way. I love that people out there actually listen. You know, I'm not going to say I'm exactly one of the huger podcasts, but I appreciate you guys uh, hearing what I have to say. We'll make this a very long episode. Don't worry. Only three movies on, on topic for today. But I wanted to start by talking about something that's very near and dear to my heart, which is the fact that the Toronto Raptors are the NBA champions. That's right. The Raptors, a team I have followed since their inception. Uh, you know, I've been, I went to the first ever Raptors game when I was very young, got to see in person later that season, Michael Jordan and the, uh, Chicago Bulls, who would go on to win 72 games, then an NBA record for, I guess it was an NBA record for a really long time until a couple of seasons ago. Uh, you know, they uh, lost to the Toronto Raptors, to Damon Stoudemire and crew. Pretty cool. You know, I got to go see, I've seen a lot of lean times to the Raptors over the years. Certainly a lot of cool times as well with Vince Carter and, you know, Chris Bosh and later DeMar DeRozan. And if you want to go back a little further, of course, Damon Stoudemire, like I mentioned. Anyways, not going to make this a sports podcast. It's just, I can't believe, like it's, it's been over a week since the Raptors won, since I got to go out into the city on Thursday night, and there, there's a big party on the streets, and the parade, of course, with thousands, of, not even thousands, millions of people flooding the streets of my fair city, and, oh man, it just, every time I think about it, I think it can't be real, you know? It's like, it's like being, watching the Raptors win the championship, and then hearing about it weeks later, is like an edible or something, some kind of drug that kicks in every week. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful feeling. Anyways, Toronto, Toronto Raptors, the NBA champions. It's real. People in Canada, you deserve this. Always pretty cool. But we're going to talk about movies today, as promised. And uh, like I mentioned, only three movies on, the t- on tap for today. Uh, I'm only going to spend about 10 minutes a movie. Not super long, because, I mean, you know what? These movies have been out for a while, and I think that if you have not gone to see any of these three movies... It's probably because you're not interested in them, right? But if you want to hear my thoughts on them, we'll, we'll, we'll go into the reviews of these three films. And uh, the films we're going to do today are Aladdin, Disney's new Aladdin uh, live-action remake. We're going to talk about Godzilla, King of the Monsters, sequel to a movie came out a couple of years ago, and X-Men Dark Phoenix, which came out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it is the last in the Fox era of X-Men movies, which is uh, kind of a kind of an end of a real, a real generation of movie makers, right? Of course, uh, the first X-Men movie coming out in 2000. Isn't that crazy? It's been 2000. It's been uh, 19 years since the year 2000, 2019, right? And there have been, let's see, I have a list in front of me. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 movies in the X-Men canon. To be fair, those movies count Deadpool 1 and 2 and Logan, which I wouldn't necessarily count. Like, I, I, I understand they take place in the same universe, but I think Logan is supposed to be kind of like an, an alternate universe type thing, right? So if you were to take those three out, then we got Dark Phoenix as the ninth X-Men movie, right? There's X-Men in 2000, X2 in 2003, The Last Stand in 2006, X-Men Origins, if you guys remember that one, in 2009, First Class in 2011, Days of Future Past in 2012, 2014, rather, 
uh, Apocalypse in 2016, and then there was that standalone The Wolverine movie, which is in 2013, kind of in between those movies as well, right? But anyways, we will talk about all of that stuff with the Dark Phoenix review, but before we get to the reviews, I wanted to talk about a little bit of news. If you guys remember, I used to do the news segment. It's been a little busy at work, so I've kind of eschewed the, uh, the news segment in favor of just the straight reviews. We'll do a quick news segment here. So to start... I just want to talk about a trailer that recently came out, and I'm going to play something for you, and I'll, I wonder, I want to know how many of you guys get it right away. Let them in, don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. Well, now they know. Let it go, let it go. Can't hold it back anymore. Of course, that is a piece of music from Frozen, you know, as you guys might might imagine. It's one of the more popular songs of the last, uh, what, five, six years? I don't remember when the first Frozen came out, but it was, it's, it's you know, it's been recent memory. And I, frankly, I think it was a great movie. I don't, I don't really know what you guys think of Frozen, but I personally really enjoyed Frozen. I think it was, a, it was entertaining, you know. There was a, there's that part of the movie where Anna turns to ice at the very end, and Disney brilliantly kind of delays her inevitable coming back to life by just a few beats longer than they usually do, right? So if you look at, like, Beauty and the Beast, for example, you know, when she gets stabbed and he dies and Belle says to the Beast, I love you, and then she, like, dies. She gets a cry on his corpse, basically, and then, you know, the curse lifts and he gets lifted into the air and all these beads of light are falling off and he turns into a human and, you know, bam, we've done it. The Beast is saved. It happens, like, virtually instantly, right? Like, if you were to watch that movie again, I rewatched it recently for fun uh, with my girlfriend, and there's a part, I know, right, bragging about that, <laughs> um, but uh, the the part where Belle is kind of sobbing on the Beast's chest, he, she does it for, I want to say, two to three seconds, okay? Now, if you watch um, Frozen and where Anna is an ice statue, I always remember so vividly People, kids in the audience were like, daddy and mommy, is Anna, is she really dead? Is she coming back to life? And then you can hear the parents go, yeah, 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 of course. Because of course the parents all know. The parents are probably my age, perhaps a little bit older, right? They're all going, yeah, of course. You know, having seen all the deaths like in Beauty and the Beast, like Belle and so on, right? When they come back to life almost instantly. And then Disney does, I, th- I still think it's absolutely brilliant. They like essentially add maybe like what? three seconds to what the time you usually think. And it was enough time. It's not a long time, really. In practicality, she's probably dead for like, what, seven, eight seconds, which doesn't sound like a long time. But when you're all sitting there staring at the screen, watching this frozen statue and the other characters start to think, holy crap, she's not coming back to life. Maybe she's actually dead. Maybe she's a statue. And you start to think maybe the statue will shatter into a bunch of pieces and she's really gone. And then, of course, she comes back to life, but they they drag it out just long enough that even I thought to myself, holy shit, this is dark. That's some dark stuff, you know? But then, no, she's fine. It's a kid's movie. It's for, it's Disney-fied, you know? Like, you kind of expect it. 
you know, we've got, they got to sell Anna merch. We won't do very well if she dies at the end of the movie. Okay, I get it. I get it. But I thought it was really well done. So Frozen 2, you know, Frozen 2 is coming out in November of this year. Looks pretty interesting. So let's take a peek real quick at a piece of the trailer. Elsa, the past is not what it seems. You must find the truth. Across the enchanted lands and into the unknown. But be careful. We have always feared Elsa's powers were too much for this world. Now we must hope. I won't let anything happen to her. Okay, I probably didn't need to play the whole thing, but I think the music... You know, we played a little bit of the music, so I felt it was appropriate to play some music from the trailer, and I think it sounds great. You know, they could have really easily just done, like, a, an orchestral version or some... You know how they do those, that, that, tr- that trend in trailers now? of doing like kind of creepy famous songs like there's that there's that trailer for and i forget the movie is called it's like a horror movie like you know with the sarah bellows like the creepy book it's like i think it's i think it's scary stories to tell in the dark i think that's the name of the old series and now the name of the movie and the trailer is a creepy orchestral version of i think it's somewhere over the rainbow Similarly, they did something like that for Godzilla. We'll talk about with Godzilla, King of the Monsters, in, in a sec here. But one of the trailers of Godzilla, the music is like a creepy orchestral version of another really well-known song, right? So that's I guess that's all I'm saying. It's just that they could have really taken the easy route with "Let It Go," you know, and like done a kind of like a like a soft piano version of "Let It Go" or something like that, and they didn't. So, I don't know. I, I really like the original Frozen. I think it's fun. I love all the new Disney animation studios, like 3D movies, like the non-Pixar 3D movies, right? So, I think, which I think are really just Tangled, Zootopia, Moana, and Frozen. Not in that order. I forget what order they came out. I think Tangled was the first one, but I think it's those four. And now it'll be Frozen 2, um, and there are some other ones coming out as well, right, of course. But th- those are the ones that I think are, you know, and, and they're all pretty good, I would say, don't you think? Like, I think, you know, they, they're all pretty critically acclaimed. They have some good messages. They're funny. They're colorful. They have great music, fantastic music, you know? Anyways, I, I find it interesting. So, uh, yeah, that's Frozen 2 coming out in November. Like I mentioned, we'll be obviously be covering it on the podcast because, you know, I can't stay away from that kind of stuff as much of a, a I like Disney kind of stuff. But for now, um, that's all we're, we're going to focus on for Frozen. And we'll, we will stick with Disney, however, now that I think about it. We will be sticking with Disney, and we're going to be getting right into the review. So why don't we start with the review of Disney's latest live-action film, Aladdin. Here I go. Alibaba, he had them 40 feet. That is, of course, Will Smith, who was the uh, oft-criticized, highly publicized version of the genie. And let's be honest, let's be honest, okay? 
If you haven't seen this movie already, me just talking about it right now is not going to sway you. Because if you were a fan of the original Aladdin, come out in the early 90s, right? If you're a fan of that movie at all, as I am, for example, I grew up watching that movie, then you probably have gone to see this film. If you have kids, you probably have taken to see this film. Because that's who it's built for. First and foremost, it's built for kids. I would say more for kids of today who have never seen it than us, you and I, who have probably watched this movie, the, you know, the 90, early 90s version of this movie uh, with Robin Williams and so on, right? So you either have already seen it or you have no intention of seeing it, in which case you're listening to this podcast. Right? I think it's a pretty fair thing to say because, look, the, the short review of this movie is that, hey, it's Aladdin. It's Aladdin. If you've seen the, mo- mo- the original version, you've seen this movie. There's, there's a couple of differences, sure. There's a couple of differences, but not enough for it to be important. Nothing that really is, is really that important because the crux of the movie is exactly the same, as it should be, frankly. But, hey, it's Aladdin. That you, you know what, if that's all you wanted from this, just to hear that song a little bit and then move on, you can probably X out now and go to the next review for Godzilla. But you know what, that's, that's the short version of 2019's Aladdin. You know what? And that's fine with me. And look, I'll, I'll say this, if you want to get a little more in depth, I think like considering all the bad press that's surrounded this movie, it's pretty impressive that Aladdin actually turned out as well as it did. You know, it's a fun enough remix it retains all the charm of the original, I feel like. Maybe a little corporate in some parts where it just kind of speeds along, but that's probably the best thing it could have been. You know, it's just, I would say it's the same thing with the remake of The Beauty and the Beast and the remake of Cinderella and the remake of The Jungle Book, right? Like, they're all virtually the exact same movie. I would say Beauty and the Beast is even, is even more samey-samey than this movie is, right? But look, it, it hits... The story still works with a little teeny, teeny, tiny changes when it hits all your favorite beats, so it's fine, right? And here's the thing... There are f- so few characters in the original telling of this story for Disney back in the early 90s that the movie now, the live-action movie in 2019, it really hinges on the acting of those characters, right? So essentially it hinges on the acting of Aladdin, Jasmine, Jafar, and the genie, right? We'll start with Aladdin, okay? We'll start with Aladdin because Mina Masood, who is Canadian... I will say he was in Jack Ryan, I believe. He was pretty fantastic, I would say. Like, maybe fantastic, actually, now that I say it out loud, is going a little too far. Not because he's not good. It's just Aladdin is, uh, even in the original, he's not like super unique. Does that make sense? Like, he's kind of just like your everyman elevated into a role with a good heart, and his good heart is what like wins him everything in the end, right? I think Masood, he brings this kind of believability, maybe that's the best word, earnestness, let's say, right, to Aladdin that kind of grounds him. And I think that's the best thing he could have possibly been. He didn't need to be super funny. He didn't need to be super silly, but he kind of strikes a balance right in the middle. And I like it. I like it a lot. He was great. Canadian boy, like I said, hard to dislike the guy, right? (laughs) Um, Who else? Let's see. We talked about Aladdin. Jasmine, of course. Jasmine, uh, played by Naomi Scott, who last we saw in Power Rangers, the live-action Power Rangers reboot from a couple of years ago. And she's she's fantastic. I I dare say she is the second best acting job in the movie. You know, she she's Jasmine is witty. 
and funny. She has like a biting kind of humor. Jasmine's storyline actually gets juiced up a bit for 2019 in terms of making it a little more modern. I mean, it, yeah, it all still takes place in Agrabah and it's this kind of like old world kind of city, but it, it, it makes sense within the context of Agrabah's world. It also makes sense in terms of modernity a little bit. And I think the movie is better for it. Her character is better for it. She also has a song added, Speechless, which I think was the number in Beauty and the Beast. They added that song um, Forevermore, I think it was called. And it was sung by um, Dan Stevens in, as who plays the Beast. And so Naomi Scott, who can really sing, she has a set of pipes on her. She uh, gets the Speechless song and she's she kills it. It's great. I, I really like it. I, I thought I was a bit underwhelming when you first hear it, but then you realize that's just like kind of like prologue for lack of a better term for the song and then the actual version which she really belts it out comes a little later and then I was like oh, okay the song's actually pretty good um, Marwan Kinzari Jafar uh, he, he's changed a little bit too maybe a little to juice it up a little bit for, for today he's not a creepy old guy anymore he's more of a young up and coming ambitious vizier who is you know he feels he's risen to the top of the, the totem pole he can't get any higher and yet he wants to be higher right and it kind of his motivations, I guess, are, are are tinged, tinted with a little more realism than before. You know, instead of him just being like evil and e- cackling evilly, kind of like for evil's sake. That's kind of like the big problem of this movie, really, is that Jafar is evil in the original for almost no reason. And this, when they try, because that's what you like, that's, that's what you, that's what you know, right? As a fan of the original or just as a, as being familiar with the original, that when he's now being evil for like a real reason, it's, it's almost like, oh, that's kind of disappointing because before he's such a, he's such a, well, you know, I was going to say he was such a cartoon before, but hey, he was a cartoon before. He was a literal cartoon. So you can be as cartoonishly evil as he wants, right? And when you look at it from the perspective of a real person, you kind of go, hmm, doesn't quite work as well. But you know what? Kenzari himself is fine. He, I thought he, I actually really enjoyed it. It's just funny because there's a line in the original where the Sultan goes, oh, Jafar, but you're so old. When he's talking about, you know, how Jafar should be the one to marry the princess. And then he becomes Sultan and so on. That's like the motivation in the original. And they just don't even bother with that because, hey, Jafar's not old. He's a young, attractive looking guy, right? So it's like, why would the Sultan really even really even object to that, right? Anyway, so it was fine. Um, Nassim Pedrad, who's not one of the main characters, but she, uh, of course, from Saturday Night Live, right? Uh, she joins as the uh, newly created character handmaiden Dahlia. And she, I think it's really just to play off the genie and the humor. But hey, look. Mentioned the genie. You heard the song at the beginning of the review. Despite this, the name of this movie, right? It's called Aladdin. Yeah, we talked about Mina Masood. But who's the star of this film? It's it's Will Smith, right? It's the genie character. Real Robin Williams was the star, you know, all those years ago. R.I.P. Robin Williams, right? And he did he did such an amazing job. Not only, you know, he, he, he was so good that he ushered in the era of celebrity voice acting, for God's sakes, right? So he did such an amazing job, and his, his unique charisma and energy was brought to the role in such a, an integral way that it was kind of inevitable that anyone who followed in his footsteps would be compared, right? So here you go, Will Smith, one of the most charismatic, famous, and larger-than-life movie stars on the face of the planet. And even though he was, I would say, pilloried after that screenshot, you know, when it aired during Monday Night Football or whatever— he is the best part of this movie. He is the best part of Aladdin 2019. You know, on it, truthfully, they should have given him more to do, honestly. There's just one example, but there's a brilliant change to the end of the Prince Ali song that evokes tons of laughter from the audience, and I think only Will Smith could have really gotten away with that. 
There's another part too where you know where uh, when Aladdin wishes himself out of the cave without really using a wish. I use air quotes for wishing himself out of the cave because you, you guys remember that he gets out of the cave without expending a wish, and the genie has to be like, "Oh boy, you got me there." And then, and then you know they don't really waste any more wishes. But that that the part they kind of go back over that in the film also a highlight. Also probably could have only worked with Will Smith. I thought it was pretty unique. I don't know. It was a. Uh, it was pretty good. Uh, I will say though that there, the film is not without its flaws. It's not perfect. And I think the two major issues are this, right? The first one is pacing. So Guy Ritchie, you know, he's known for making sequences, action sequences that are just wildly entertaining, and consider like chase sequences, no less, right? And considering that's what he's known for, the the one jump ahead sequence at the very beginning is kind of boring. It's very mechanical, you know. And the first the, the first fifteen minutes, including that kind of passes by in a blur because nothing really especially exciting happens, nothing really notable happens, almost as though Richie knows that you and I, the audience, want to see the genie and what the genie is like and what he does and so on, and he just moves at like a breakneck pace to get us there. And then once we're there, it's great, but, and, and you know what? Masood and Smith have some great charisma. Maybe that's a lot of Will Smith, considering we know, you know, he's a proven commodity, a known entity, right? But until that point, it's a little dull, because nothing really interesting happens. And secondly, it's a weird comment to have about this movie, but there's some odd visual slash technical issues with the movie. And what I mean by that is it looks like when you're watching the musical sequences, right? When people are dancing and singing, uh, that it looks like some of the visuals have been sped up. Like as if, like as if someone has taken out frames of the movie. So the, so the action on screen has timed out better to the music. It's so weird. It's like the music is off by like five beats. It's ahead by five beats. So someone hit fast forward on the remote control so the so the music catches up to the or sorry, the action catches up to the music. And it's and 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 then they like press play when it's all caught up. It's it's so weird. It's it's like they speeds up and slows down during the action sequences and particularly the musical sequences. And it's just really jarring to watch, right? Because you know you know in the context of this movie what normal beings look and move like, even if you don't, even if you're not looking at yourself, you see what the the normal part humans in this movie look like in a normal sense. And then the music starts, and they're like, "Oh, fast forward and moving really fast." And then they stop singing, and then they think things go back to normal. It's so weird. It's the strangest thing, and it's it's really it's very noticeable. And I don't know if it's because Guy Ritchie is not used to directing like Bollywood like you know, musical sequences, so he didn't time it out properly, or I don't know what the issue is, but it's jarring, and it takes away from the movie overall for a movie that so heavily relies on famous musical sequences, if that makes sense, right? So anyways, those are my only real my only real complaints. Um, and, and you know what? We played Friend Like Me at the beginning of the review. It has nothing to do with Friend Like Me because that whole sequence is CGI. So that CGI can be fixed because it's just CGI, right? But the sequences where it's like, um, like 100 extras all dancing in the background while Aladdin and, and Jasmine, for example, dance in the foreground, it's noticeable because it's real people and you can't change the real people, right? Short of just reshooting the entire sequence, which they're clearly not going to do, right? So anyways, weird, weird problem for a movie like this to have for such a big-budget Disney-level blockbuster. It's almost like they were like, hmm, good enough. <laughs> they send it to the movie theaters. But regardless, uh, that's, that's Aladdin. You know, the, like I said, the short review is that it's Aladdin. You know, if you've ever seen the original, i.e., Virtually, not every single one, but virtually every movie go over the age of 25. It's familiar territory, and, you know, Guy Ritchie clearly knows the saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. No, it's not a quite 
you know, uh, let's say a whole new world, pardon the pun, but the original is better, but he just changes it a teeny bit enough to make it a new take, and it's propelled largely by Will Smith, so that's fine, right? So, you know what, you've seen the original, you haven't seen the original, it's enjoyable for all ages, so just sit back and let the nostalgia wash over you, because you know what, it's probably worth a, uh, a watch just to see Will Smith sing some songs. All right, let's move on to the next review on the docket. And you know what? I actually really enjoyed this movie. It was pretty interesting to see the variety of visuals on screen. I saw this movie in IMAX, which is a big plus. So let's get right into it. The review for Godzilla, King of Monsters. My Godzilla. Our planet will perish. And so will we. We set Godzilla free. Oh, yeah, sure. Let's bring him in for a beer. No, this time we join the fight. Run. See, I told you there was some, you know, instrumental, instrumentals going on, you know? I may have mixed up the song. I, Somewhere Over the Rainbow was for this movie, not Scary Stories Tell in the Dark. Maybe it was both, to tell you the truth. I don't only really remember Scary Stories Tell in the Dark, the trailer, like really all that in, in detail, I should say. But hey, look, it worked for the trailer. I don't think they actually did it that much in the movie itself, but whatever. It was, it was a good way to market the movie. I really liked it. There was this one, and then there was another one. I forget what song they used, but they used two different kind of, you know, piano instrumentals of famous songs, which are kind of neat, right? So anyways, uh, that was pretty cool. And I want to start by talking about Godzilla in the sense that when you go see a Godzilla movie, okay, when you go see a monster movie in general, when you go see a disaster movie, and, 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 and recently those two genres have been crossed over, right? Because Godzilla is destroying towns, you know, King Kong is destroying, like, fleets of ships, like, like, these monsters they're fighting, all these things. Like, it's kind of like, you know, Independence Day was the same kind of thing in 2012 and all those kind of disaster movies, right? You, you kind of go to watch the... It's like disaster porn, right? Or monster movie disaster porn. That's what you're kind of going to watch, right? You are not going to watch the humans. You're not going to watch the humans. You're not going to see the acting. You're going to see the CGI stunts, the CGI spectacles that is these monsters beating the crap out of each other while destroying buildings around themselves, right? But I I feel like we should mention the cast just to kind of get it out of the way because it has a really good cast. Like Kyle Chandler, Vera Farmiga, Millie Bobby Brown, Ken Watanabe, Zizi Zhang, Bradley Whitford, Sally Hawkins, Charles Dance, O'Shea Jackson, David Strathairn. Like, there's so many really famous actors in this film, and it's kind of surprising. It's kind of shocking that for a movie where, like, a lot of these guys just don't get to do a lot, you know, no, no one's really going to see them anyways. We're going to see giant monsters tear each other up in cities alike. And you know what? The director, Michael Doherty, figures it out. He knows and he gets us to the action and the action to us early and often, right? The movie basically starts with Godzilla traveling to Antarctica. You know, he, he goes there to mis- investigate this mysterious frequency. And as you heard, uh, or maybe seen, I should say, in the trailer, 
Godzilla, you know, battles the uh, other apex predator. He's an apex predator. He goes to battle the three-headed dragon that we've seen in all the trailers, King Ghidorah, and the other monsters who they refer to as titans. Um, you know, they bow to the will of the apex predator, the alpha. So, of course, Godzilla and Ghidorah battle it out several times. You know, we get some glimpses of other famous monsters as well, right? Mothra, he, she, she's a... I'm, I'm pretty sure it's implied that Mothra is a she, even though you don't really tell. It's just a giant bug, right? A giant moth, really. Uh, that with, you know, opalescent kind of glowing wings. Rodan is kind of like, di- it's a dinosaur. Rodan is a dinosaur, basically, right? Uh, a flying dinosaur who hibernates within an active volcano. Um, they, the, the two of them round out the, the big four, let's call them. There's some other there's some other unnamed monsters wreaking havoc around the world as well, and we don't really get a, more than a couple glimpses of them. You know, there's like one that like kind of looks like a spider. There's a giant like mammoth looking thing, you know, all these things. Uh, and you know, there's a t- there's a couple of tantalizing looks at Skull Island, like we're getting like you know like some ra- radio calls, like we're getting overrun here, Skull Island. Oh my God, what is that? It's a giant. Ant. And you're like, oh okay, what what could be on Skull Island? Maybe King Kong from the movie Kong Skull Island. <laughs> I don't know. obviously it's a tease for people who like that kind of thing it's obviously setting up Godzilla versus Kong which is another famous movie you know matchup I guess you want to call that a, a ma- mashup a matchup whatever you want to call it right but that's a far ways away also spoilers when Godzilla wins at the end of this movie right he wins he beats King Ghidorah not a shock right but King Ghidorah is like a flying three-headed electricity breathing space dragon okay this thing levels cities without a second thought it has three heads each of which seem independently intelligent blast energy lightning bolts across city that doesn't level whole places right there's a wonder godzilla even wins frankly but whatever godzilla does win and yet they're trying to sell me like at the end of the movie and there by the way there isn't there's a mid-credits kind of it's not really a scene. It's just as the credits are rolling, you kind of see the aftermath of the Titans and Godzilla winning. And then at the end of the actual black and white credits that roll, you know, horizontally, um, there is a uh, an actual after credit scene. So stick around if you want that hopeful experience. But like part of the whole, after, like not after credits, but the kind of credits roll when you're finding out what's happening to the world, they're clearly setting up the Kong and Godzilla movie. And it's just like, Godzilla just spent the last hour and a half, two hours, beating the crap out of some, like, giant space dragon monster bug combo of villains, right? And what? You're expecting me to think that a large ape can beat Godzilla? No way. I'm sorry, no. There's there's nothing about that movie that really tantalizes me, despite the tease, because Godzilla just spent the last two movies destroying San Francisco and then Boston in this one, and you're telling me that... Like, an ape that's, like, kind of big is supposed to be Godzilla? No. I'm sorry. No. That's wrong. That's not going to happen. What I think what I think will probably happen is there'll be enemies for the first bit, and then, like, God, Ghidorah will probably just come back, and they'll have to fight with each other against, like, a new Ghidorah or something like that. It'll be something like that. You know what I mean? Because... I'm, you can't convince me that they're going to make a full movie about two, essentially, and I use air quotes here, protagonist monsters, right, fighting each other for the whole time, and one of them dies at the end. Like, probably not, right? They, probably, they both have to live, and they both have to, you know, be good, I guess. Good, again, is in air quotes, whatever. Uh, like I said, based on every other Godzilla movie, 
you know, you know he wins. You could probably have guessed that, but it's not really about the ending. You know, it's about the journey. I know it sounds kind of cliched, but the explosion-filled, monster-fied journey that takes the audience from, you know, one scene of carnage to another, from the Antarctic to the ocean to some city in Mexico to daily later Boston. And it's easy to wish that the action never really stops. And I can't, I, you know, I definitely wished that when I was watching it, but there has to be something for the eventual sequel. You know, Washington, they go to Washington too, so... And like I mentioned, the monster movies, disaster movies before, like if you're the kind of fan of the spectacle who loves the kind of spectacle, I should say, that is delivering disaster movies like Independence Day or Pacific Rim or whatever, then you'll love, you know, Godzilla's latest outing. Because here's the thing. Again, the, the plot is as thin as rice paper. You know what I mean? Like even more than regular paper, like the kind of thing that you touch and it dissolves, right? Because there, there's no plot whatsoever. It's just thinly veiled excuses to go from one big set piece to another big set piece to another big set piece, right? And they, they barely like linger on one before they have to move off to another with some like some kind of lame one-liner. And I, I think that's probably the movie's biggest weakness is that they, they go so far in the other direction away from the humans being the crux of the story. Cause that was kind of one of the complaints of the first one with Brian Cranston and Aaron Taylor Johnson and Elizabeth Olsen, right? Was that they spent so much on their story and frankly, who gives a crap, right? And then you, and then you kind of go so far the other way. And I'm not complaining. I think Godzilla King of the Monsters is the best Godzilla movie to come to North America, at least in a long time. Shin Godzilla. And you guys remember we had the conversation with Cody Piper, who's a big Godzilla fan. Uh, he talks about Shin Godzilla at length in the Godzilla franchise. And look, well, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not putting those movies down. Those are like the kind of quote unquote authentic Godzilla experience, if you want it. But in terms of North American blockbusters, Godzilla is the best one to come to, you know, the big screen in a long time. So in that sense, I think King of the Monsters is, is as good as it gets. You know, you you can't you you the audience, me the audience. We're not we're not going to go see the humans like I've mentioned a couple times, right? You're going to see the Godzilla fights against the various villain monsters and you know these movie legends because i think it's appropriate to call them that considering how long godzilla has been around they just wreak as much damage in as little time as possible and you know what that's pretty cool it's a summer blockbuster in every sense of the word it may not be a particularly good one but if you're like i said if you're going just for the the spectacle then you know what i say long live the king well, you know, we always save the best for last. Or do we, actually? You know, I, I realized maybe I should have put this one first, this next movie, because, you know what? It's not the best. Of the three movies, in fact, that we're talking about the podcast today, it is the worst one. And you know what? I could probably just give you a really short review of it right now, but you know what? Let's get right into it, and then we'll, I'll explain all the reasons why I did not think this movie was the best. So... Without further ado, the review for the last movie in the Fox era film franchise, X-Men Dark Phoenix. Ooh, some moody music from Hans Zimmer, the uh, famous soundtrack composer film soundtrack composer Hans Zimmer doing the music for X-Men Dark Phoenix brilliant guy brilliant guy you know what whatever you want to say about X-Men Dark Phoenix Hans Zimmer is one of the best in the business X-Men Dark Phoenix however 
hmm, is not one of the best movies in the business this year. Uh, look, if there was one word I would use to describe X-Men Dark Phoenix, okay, it would be lifeless. And you know what? It's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. This is the fourth entry in the first class saga, right? It's the fourth entry. There is uh, first class, Days of Futures Past, Apocalypse, and now Dark Phoenix, right? Remember that? Remember the first class that started back as a kind of a prequel slash reboot series back in 2011? And, you know, James McAvoy and Michael Fassbender were brought on as kind of these, you know, young, sexy versions of uh, Professor Charles Xavier. No, he had a professor. Or I think he was a very, a very, very, very fresh professor, I think. I mean, I believe first class actually starts, now that I think back, uh, him maybe like just completing his dissertation or something, and he be- he just becomes a professor, I believe, and Magneto respectively, and you know together they injected some life back into the X Men franchise. You know there was Last Stand. We talked about this at the beginning of the ep- of the podcast, right? Two thousand and six is X three, The Last Stand. Two thousand and nine's X Men Origins Wolverine, probably the two worst movies in X Men franchise up until now. <laughs> um, McAvoy and Fastbender, you know what? They're still the best things about Dark Phoenix. More so, I would say Fastbender in this one. But the unvarnished truth is that this film is a bust, beginning to end. No good parts about it. No redeeming parts about it. It's bad through, 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 and through. Okay. If that's all you need to know, you can probably stop listening right now and skip to the end because. I'm not going to say anything positive about this movie, truly, because it's, it, I mean, where do I even begin, right? It's, it's hard to look at this movie without thinking of the aforementioned Last Stand because they both deal with the Phoenix saga, quote unquote, right? A series of events where mutant Jean Grey, who's played by Sophie Turner from Game of Thrones in, the, in this movie and, of course, back in with Apocalypse, and uh, she is Jean Grey, possessed by and lo- subsequently loses control of the Phoenix Force, which is this kind of alien energy, I suppose, that that comes to Earth to get her or that comes to Earth and eventually interacts with her and it does catastrophic damage to both her family, the X-Men, and the world alike, right? And now here's the thing. The very concept of Dark Phoenix is an odd one to me, right? The movie. Because at the end of 2016's Apocalypse, where we see the younger X-Men like Cyclops, Nightcrawler, um, Storm... Etc. For the first time, Jean Grey, of course, for the first time in the current set of X-Men movies, right? Jean Grey defeats Oscar Isaac's Apocalypse by presumably unleashing the Phoenix Force. That's the weirdest thing about this movie to me. Like, it, it, and, and then this movie begins with Jean Grey encountering the Phoenix Force. It's just a strange disconnect, which is even stranger because the writer of Apocalypse is the writer and the director of X-Men The Dark Phoenix, Simon Kinberg. So either he forgot or he didn't explain it that well back in 2016, neither of which are good things, okay? Because here's here are the two scenarios. He either forgot, which is just crazy to me, it's crazy, frankly, or what was implied at the end of Apocalypse was that she was not using the Phoenix Force, and just her regular psychic powers. It's hard to understand because, you know, there's a scene at the end of, of the apocalypse where Professor X is going, Gene, unleash your powers. Save us, Gene. Okay, that's a terrible, that's a terrible, that's a god-awful accent. I'm so sorry for subjecting you to that, but my, my point remains. He's saying, save us, Gene, save us. Unlock your powers. Break down the mental barriers I put in your mind when you were a little girl. And then she does that. 
and you see this blast of red energy fly out from behind her. This pure light, just annihilating Apocalypse. And he goes, I see the light now. And they were like, something like that, or pure power, like Star Wars style, right? And he gets annihilated. And I think it's, it's implied that it's setting up the Dark Phoenix series of movies, right? It's implied that that's what, like, just like what happens in X2 with Famke Jansen, you know, way back when. Right? Because that's how the movie ends. She stops the dam. Remember the dam bursts? And she reaches out and sticks one hand to stop the, the dam from destroying the uh, the blackbird. And then to the other hand, she lifts them out. And then the water. And then, like you see, she starts to glow. And her eyes start to glow. And the red energy starts to come out. And then the water overwhelms her. And she, she supposedly dies. Right? And that's what unlocks the Phoenix Force. Because in the X2, it's been in her all along. And then in the last stand... She like loses full control and she's she's back and she kills everyone and so on, right? And hey, Simon Kinberg wrote The Last Stand as well. So you know what? Disney, if you're listening to this, please, for the love of God, stop giving Simon Kinberg chances to do stuff for X-Men because you know what? He's been given enough chances and he's screwed all of them up. He screwed all of them up. I don't understand. He needs to be stopped, okay? Because it's it's not good. And look, let's go back to the story, though, because a primary issue of Jean Grey and Cyclops and Storm is that it's simply hard to care about them. It's hard to care about really anyone not named Professor X or Magneto because those characters haven't really earned it, right? Like, they were reintroduced to us as new quote-unquote characters for the very first time in 2016 in Apocalypse, and then they spent most of their time in that movie meeting each other. And now in the very next movie, I know it's supposed to be like eight years later, but we, the audience, haven't seen those eight years. We haven't seen anything in between. Apocalypse was already underwhelming. And now we're asked to being believed that they have their best friends and they love each other and all that stuff. And I, frankly, I don't believe it because we haven't seen anything that makes me believe that they're anything but just kind of like students who go to the same school, acquaintances at best, right? And the thing is, this could all be glossed over if the actors made the viewers believe they were a team. But the, the other issue is that the performances are all pretty wooden, right? Like, I mentioned Fassbender before. He's the only one who even looks like he's trying. Even James McAvoy, Charles Xavier is reduced to a fraction of his normal self, just kind of whining about stuff. And Sophie Turner, who is, the, who is supposed to have her star-turning role with Jean Grey, as opposed to, you know, Game of Thrones, she's like, a main character, but not the main character. And she's like the star of Dark Phoenix, right? And she just seems kind of miscast as Jean Grey. Like, she tries her best, but most of her dialogue in this movie is her, like, mumbling to the Phoenix power in her head going, oh my god, oh my god, please, no, no, I can't stop, stop talking, oh my god. And then she just goes, quiet! Like, Missy Elliott style, and then just shouts it, blows a crater in the ground, and then just, and then scoots off. And that's it. That's the majority of Sophie Turner's scenes. You know what? If you, if you play that part of the podcast five times, that's all Sophie Turner's lines from this movie, okay? Jessica Chastain, you might even have forgotten she's in this movie. She's the, rounds out the kind of big acting names as the villain, but you know what? She is so incredibly forgettable that it's almost not worth mentioning. She is a walking, talking, narrative slash font of exposition, and her character just exists for no other reason other than to be the villain and hiss menacingly at the at the main characters a couple times. Like, you know what? If her character actually has a name, I do not remember what it is. Truly, I don't remember what it is. And th there are other actors in here too, right? But they either have zero chemistry with the leads, like Ty Sheraton, uh, who plays Cyclops, or are barely on screen and they get written out, like Jennifer Lawrence, Mystique. So it's not even worth mentioning them, honestly. that Their, their names, is th that's it. That's as far as we're going to go.
I don't know. There's there's like a frayed thread in this movie somewhere about how the fragile peace Professor X has negotiated with the human race is now threatened by Gene's actions. But Simon Kinberg treats it via his script and direction like an afterthought. You know, like there's a there's a scene in the beginning where they go into space where she encounters the uh, the Phoenix Force in the first place. They go into space at the personal request of the president. Like the beast tunes up the Blackbird in like five minutes. They fly into space. The personal request of the president of the United States rescue every single uh, astronaut on the space shuttle. Fly back down. Our national heroes are feted as the heroes of the world, right? Because they've done it in a very publicized mission. And then Gene, in a couple of scenes later, blows up a couple of police cars. I don't even think any of the police officers die. Like she just picks up the police car, drops it, and like the suspension blows out, and like the, the police car is undrivable. But these guys that like, climb out of the car, like, oh my god, what happened? Then she like wrecks a military helicopter. Again, no one dies, as far as I'm aware. They all just hop into the other helicopter and fly away. And all of the X-Men, all of them, literally every X-Men, every mutant is back to being public enemy number one through ten and so on. It's You know, it's wild to say, but this movie might actually be worse than The Last Stand. As I mentioned, Kinberg also wrote that, right? Like, at least X3 had some set pieces that were, like, kind of cool, like Magneto moving the Golden Gate Bridge, right? Or some stuff like, like the Juggernaut. It's kind of meme and silly. Like, I'm the Juggernaut, bitch, right? Like that part. But... And, 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 like, at least you could kind of hate it because it was kind of, it was dumb, but it was, like, silly funny. Whereas Dark, Dark, Dark Phoenix does, I will say, have a couple of sequences near the end that employ some creative abilities, particularly Nightcrawler and Magneto, I would say. But it's a very paltry reward for sitting through two-plus hours of boredom. Honestly, is it the worst X-Men movie ever? I don't think so. Origins is probably still the worst uh, X-Men movie ever, but I think this is the second worst one. I think it'd probably go like Origins, uh, this movie, Dark Phoenix, then The Last Stand, and then Apocalypse. You know, those are the, probably the four worst X-Men movies, but like, damn, it is pretty close. Dark Phoenix is just so lifeless. You know, it's lifeless. It's just, just don't go see it. Please, please don't go see it. It's just an unfortunate way for the X-Men run with Fox to be wrapped up. And look, Disney owns the rights, so you can expect in the next like five to six years, I would say, for the mutants to be rolled into the existing, you know, Marvel Cinematic Universe. But until then, the litany of things that are wrong with X-Men Dark Phoenix just go on and on. You know, mediocre acting, poor chemistry, bad dialogue, and just a lack of things that happen. Just do yourself a favor and your wallet and skip this one. Even reviewing bad movies, whether it's writing a bad review or talking about, you know, what, like a podcast or, you know, on visuals or whatever, just expressing thoughts in any way about a bad movie is kind of fun. It's kind of cathartic because, you know what, after I saw Dark Phoenix, I felt like I just wasted my time. And that's what you hate, you know, like when you're spending all this money to go see a movie, you know, you're going to the theater, you get maybe get popcorn. I like to munch on some popcorn sometimes when I watch a movie, you know, it's, it's just a part of going to the theater. And when you, when you... You'll see a bad movie, especially a long bad movie. You think to yourself, gosh, I wish I was doing something else. And that's just like the cardinal sin for me. Like if a comedy isn't funny, I've mentioned that. If movies just make me wish I was doing something else, then it didn't accomplish its job. And that's what Dark Phoenix made me feel like, you know? So that's probably the worst the worst thing I personally can say about a movie that I just wish I wasn't watching it because I, I will gladly watch even just the most turdish of movies and Dark Phoenix was a real slog, you know? Anyways, whatever. Enough on Dark Phoenix. 
That is it for this episode of the Showtime Movie Podcast. I appreciate you guys listening, as always. I told you we wouldn't take up too much of your time. Quick check on the movies that are coming up on the horizon. Men in Black International, the fourth one in the franchise. Toy Story 4, also the fourth in the franchise, as the name might imply. So, you know, a couple of, uh, what, quads? Quads? Was that, is that the proper name? I'm not sure. The Quadrology? I guess we'll see if there are more, right? But anyways, probably tackle those movies in the next episode. Maybe Rocket Man as well. So those are coming up. Lots of other movies uh, as well. We're getting into the summer months. There's Yesterday, the Beatles movie coming out soon. Um, Hobbs and Shaw's coming out. Spider-Man, Far From Home. Maybe we'll have a guest for that one. Who knows? So lots of stuff coming up on the horizon. So, you know, stay tuned for that. But for now, I thank you so much for listening. It's the weekend. I hope you guys managed to enjoy your weekend. It's the summer. I hope you managed to get outside. Maybe you're listening to this podcast outside. That'd be nice. <laughs> but for now, I look forward to bringing you the next episode of the Showtime Movie Podcast. Have a great night. You know it's Will Smith and DJ Khaled. Uh, too late, y'all done wound me up. Too late, y'all done wound me up. About to show you what I'm working with. It's the Alibaba, it's the Big Papa, it's the Blue. Jasmine like a flower, it's the graduations, it don't even cost a dollar. Hey, you gotten on the carpet when you rot and wanna holler like, hey, tell me where you wanna go. Hold up, don't tell me I already know. Watch out, it's a genie with an attitude. Three wishes, what I need to make true. Mr. 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 Tell me whatever you need. Anything where your range, even climate can change. You ain't never had a friend like me. Just a lamp in the rubber, away from whatever you want. Habibi, let me show you the dream.